I'm glad you said that. Thank you. All right. Well, as uh, Ron was just mentioning, today is Palm Sunday. It is the day that Jesus rode into, in case you don't know, it's the day that Jesus literally rode on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem uh, just a few days before he would be crucified. And so um, in that context, if you remember, and you should know this, this is what the children were just promoting for us, the excitement that the people had as Jesus was finally there. Now, he had been to Jerusalem before, uh, but this was his last time before he would make his ultimate sacrifice. And so as the people see him coming now, they've had three years, many who were with him all of this time, seeing him do amazing things. We're seeing some of that as we're in our study in Matthew, of course, and we'll get further down the road with that. But as they see him coming into the city, they go and do what was normal for uh, the entourage, if you will, of some royalty, a dignitary, and they begin to, as one of the gospel writers says, lay out their coats even before uh, the donkey that he was riding in on. And that also was symbolic of, of the king or the, the, the nobility coming in to the city in triumph over his foes. Uh, we also have the gospel writers telling us that the palm branches were placed in front of him as well, just again signifying who he is in the mindset of the people of that particular time. And that excitement was because, and if you're with us in our study in Matthew, you know that the belief was that Jesus was coming to overthrow the Roman occupation. They'd been so sequestered, so pushed down by their dominance and many others for years that now was the time that their ruler was finally coming. And, and they were just, just so overjoyed with the fact that this was going to end that occupation. Little did they know well, in fact, really, they didn't even know their own hearts because they had been so deceived into believing that Jesus was someone other than who he was. In other words, everything I just said, they believed that he was going to be their physical ruler to dominate over the Romans and all of those who had oppressed them. What they didn't know was that this was literally God himself in the flesh in their very presence. Now, I don't know if you think about that very often, but... I just wonder if you put yourself there in that moment, what you would be thinking. I wonder what I would be thinking. I hope that I would be on the side of those that would recognize him as truly the Lord Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God himself. But I don't know that that would be true depending on the circumstances of life and all that I had been taught up to that point. God in his grace is very gracious to us, isn't he? to give us the awareness and the understanding of who he is. Eventually, Jesus will be celebrated just for who he is. And we know that because of what John the Apostle will later write in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. In his vision, he sees these things, and that's a multitude of things, a great multitude which no one could count. This is his vision as he looks into heaven. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Now imagine going from Jerusalem just for a moment and that crowd that was gathering there, which is no telling what size it was, must have been absolutely huge. But now we're told that the entire world or the entire kingdom of heaven, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and get this, palm branches were in their hands. And so what a celebration that day is going to be. I just can't wait, can you, for what that's going to be like. Now, 
Normally I would take this time, and I've done this over the last 20 years of Easter celebrations, to go to one of the Gospels and share something from what the Gospel writer tells us about this particular event. But this year I thought I'd go back to the prophecy of the foretelling of this day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. And that comes from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Uh, the, the writers of the gospel almost literally word for word quote this. And so stand with me as we read verse 9, and that's going to be our starting text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to go back and I want to look at several of the Old Testament prophets in order to get a good understanding of why Zechariah said what he did. So if you go back, and you don't have to turn there, but... Um, if you go back to the beginning words of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 1, you realize through the study of history, as you, lay, as you go back into all that, the year was 520 B.C. So we're talking about 500 years at least before Jesus would make his entrance into Jerusalem. Eighteen years earlier, however, and I know this is kind of tough to keep up with, so just follow me the best you can on this. Cyrus, who was king of Persia in that day, would allow the first of three waves of Hebrew people who were in his captivity to go back to Jerusalem. So 18 years before Zechariah would say anything, that's the setting that we have. And that first wave was in 538 BC under a man named Zerubbabel. The second wave would be in 458 BC led by a man named Ezra, whom we're going to look at in just a minute. He was one of the prophets. The third wave was led by Nehemiah, which would have been 13 years after that, which would have been 445 B.C. Now, again, you don't have to write all that down. This is not going to be a history quiz for those of you that um, don't like history and try to keep up with all the dates. What we know from the prophet Ezra will come from chapter 1 and also chapter 3, so I just want you to understand that even though Zechariah's message was prophesied, Jesus is coming as he re would, would return or come into Jerusalem that first time on the donkey. It's Ezra really who gives us the better picture of what was really going on. And so again, Zechariah gives the many prophecies throughout those chapters of the Messiah and that coming Messiah of which the gospel writers pick up on. But we have to go to Ezra now in order to really understand what's happening. And the situation is this, as Cyrus was now allowing the people whom had been gathered under his deportation, if you will, uh, was allowing them to go back under, back and to rebuild the temple. And it didn't take long for them to go back with great enthusiasm. And there were a lot of reasons for that. One of them was, was because they had God with them who was sending them back now to rebuild the temple that they had, had once been their place of worship. But the problem was their hearts still weren't in the right place. And we get that very clearly here. Listen to how Ezra tells us in chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel 
and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Asheridon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Jeshua, he was the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Okay, so here's the setting. They're there. They're gone back now under Zerubbabel. And Ezra picks up on that story. It's, It's an exciting time for the people. And so they go back and they begin to build. But we read in verse 4 where the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate the council all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, Ezra tells us right from the beginning basically four things that happened to the people as they would go back to do what God had called them to do. Number one is they quit building the temple because some people started complaining. In other words, there were critics among them. And you see that in verse 4. And the criticism started really because these particular critics, if you were listening to Ezra there, initially wanted to help rebuild the temple. But Joshua and Zerubbabel said, no, no, this is not the same Joshua of Moses and Joshua. This is a high priest named Joshua of the time. They said no, and that was because those particular people weren't really invested in what God was doing. And that was because they were known as Samaritans. If you know anything about history with the Hebrews, you know that the Samaritans were those intermarried people between Jews and people of Samaria. And so the Jewish people considered them to be fake, really, Uh, people who were not true blood God of people. And so there was a great hatred between the two of them. And those people who were of Samaria, we know from 2 Kings 17, were people who said that they worshipped God, the true and living God, but they had been so infiltrated by the people around them and their own desires for their own forms of worship, which became very superstitious in a lot of ways, that they only had a form of religion. And Zerubbabel and Joshua knew that. And so they wouldn't let them take part in this. And so Ezra is telling us that these people appeared to have all of the same followings and the belief system of the actual Hebrew people, but their motives were just not the same. They had a different plan. And so as I thought through this, I thought, who are these people really? And, and the easiest way I know how to put this to you is that these were the people who were the ones who I like to call jumped on the whatever is going on at the time bus. You've met those people. Well, whatever is exciting at the moment are the, are the things that they want to be a part of. The problem is they want to get off when things don't go their way. Because they have their own bent and their own thinking about how life should be. In other words, if the circumstances don't fit what they thought should happen or think should happen, they just cause a ruckus. And that's because they're more invested in what they want instead of what God really wants. And how God says things should be. And so, according to Ezra, they not only got off the bus, but they continued to create problems. They were the people who were, in my mind at least, were standing on the side of the road, even though they were no longer on the bus because the rubble wouldn't let them be, and threw rocks at the bus as it went by. 
and shouted at the people as it went by. You can kind of picture that in your mind. Now, some of you are saying, was there a little literal bus there? I mean, a school bus? No, it was not a literal bus. I'm making all of that up. Just so you understand the context and the picture of the, the, the tension that must have been happening with these people. And it only gets worse. Because evidently, there was enough maybe physical in some cases. We're not necessarily told that, at least that I know of, but certainly verbal attacks on the people that was just way too much. And so because of the critics, and because critics have such a loud voice, and you know that to be true, they can take over any situation. And they have the ability to cause people to think twice about things. They have the ability to cause people to question. And if you allow the critics to lead what we see here in Ezra, it'll create problem number two. And here's what he says in verse four. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. And I already read all this, but notice this, and frightened them from building. So the second thing that happens when a critic is in control or in charge of whatever the situation is going on, the people who are under that criticism will get fearful and the work of God will stop. And that's what happened here. And when people get scared, you know, fear does a lot of weird things. I mean, if you've ever really been fearful of something, you know that it causes a lot of emotions. It causes even some physical responses, depending on what the situation is. And, and each of you have your own situations in life, and you know how fear is at the core and is at the foundation of a lot of the ways that we respond to things. Mostly, we could just simply say that fear has this ability to control us. And that's certainly evident here. I mean, just think about your life. When you set out, if you've ever had something that you really set out to do, and someone tells you it won't work, your first reaction basically is, well, what if they're right? What if I'm missing something? What if they know more than I do? Or maybe this will happen if we do that, or if I do this, or if I say this, or this kind of scenario will happen. If I do that, then that'll happen. You don't understand what happened. What, what I'm talking about here is that it just kind of begins to be a big ball of mess because that's what fear does because it takes control. I remember many, many years ago, and I hope I won't bore you with this. Some of you have heard this story, but when I first felt the call to go to school to begin the process of finishing my undergraduate work and then going on into seminary, um, I remember Debbie and I were believing we were hearing from God pretty clearly on it, but one of the questions that came up immediately was, how are you going to afford that? I remember my dad, as much as I love my dad, even to this day, and he's on, gone to be with God now, but I remember him looking at me at one point and saying, how are you going to pay for that? And I just remember just so strongly saying to him, Dad, I don't know, but what I do know is if God is in this, he'll provide the way. And he did miraculously. I mean, you know, through the work of men and through the work of things available to us, God allowed us and gave us the joy and the permission to finish undergraduate with where the school owed us money. When in the lifetime of anybody does that ever happen? And then it came time after a year and a half later because I sat out uh, before seminary and lo and behold, God provided a way for that to happen at no cost to us. 
And then even after I became your pastor here, I wanted to finish a Master of Divinity, a second master's degree, and God provided that through the SBCV of no charge. But I remember going back in, that, in my mind to thinking in those days that, you know, maybe dad's right. Maybe, maybe there's something here that I'm missing and ah, it's just kind of crazy. And the fear then you know, can have a tendency to control. And that's really all I'm saying here. And I see that here in this situation with Ezra. And it really doesn't matter what it is. My situation was that. There are other situations that you're going through. It can be over something you strongly believe in. It can be over some scenario or something as simply as wearing your favorite piece of clothing. You know, if the critics begin to say, that doesn't look very good, and it's your favorite article of clothing, then you may have a tendency to think, well, man, I don't know what I should do. And it sounds silly, but more and more people get captivated by the thoughts and the opinions of other people. And it can have a very controlling factor. Some people make a stance at some point in their life on something that they're very passionate about. And maybe it didn't go well. Maybe this was you. And, and what happens? Fear begins to take over. You know, I remember when I was in my earlier years of college. Again, I've told you this. I'll just use myself as the example this morning on a lot of these. And um, I failed out of school. And that was before I went to finish my undergraduate. That was the predecessor to all of what I just told you. And for years, I felt the fear of, what if I fail again? What if I go into this and I pour my energies into school again and it just turns out to be a big mess? You see, fear has that ability to do all of that. For some people, it's the fear of public speaking. I've had people say to me, Pastor, don't ever call on me for anything. Because one person, in fact, this was an elder of ours many years ago, Many years ago, an elderly man, he came into my office one day because I had asked the elders about doing something, and I think it was a public kind of thing, a prayer or something, and he privately came to me and he says, Pastor, if you asked me to do that, I think I'd probably throw up. I thought, well, we don't want that. <laughs> that. That would not be good. And so for you, maybe that's it. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's teaching a class or being in some form of leadership. Maybe it's having a child. You know, again, uh, whatever the subject might be, taking a job, moving to a new location, whatever it is. In extreme cases, however, fear can take so much control that those who were once with you on something even abandon you because they just can't see it and even turn on you becoming an adversary instead of a supportive role. All of these kind of things happen, and that's exactly what happened here in Zerubbabel and Joshua's case. These people were initially very supportive. Hey, let us be a part of this. We want to we help you. We worship to the same God, and Zerubbabel and Joshua say, no, you can't do that because you're not really worshiping the same God. You're going through a lot of superstitious stuff in order to look good. And I don't have to say this, but I think it's obvious this all happens within the church as well. You and I who make up the church of Christ have the ability to either be controlled or control others through a critical spirit. Because every person or every church, and this shouldn't be rocket science for you, but every church at some point has people who are there for the wrong reasons. I mean, we are doing the work of God. And so God has an enemy, right? His name is Satan. And Satan works hard to control things, to gain a following for himself, to glorify himself through the work that people do. And 
people will manifest themselves as promoting themselves as being from God, which is what was happening in Ezra's day when really they're just workers of Satan. Jesus said it this way, be aware of false prophets. This is a warning from our Lord who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I'm simply saying every church at some point has a plant in there by Satan. Now, that's not meant to scare. We don't need to be fearful. We have the Lord, right? But mark it down. Everywhere you look in Scripture, where the Lord is, Satan's going to be close behind, doing his dirty work. And I'm simply saying in Ezra's day, he was doing this work through intimidation. So, from that intimidation, the temple stopped. The building of the temple actually stopped. And not just for a few days or a few weeks or a few months. We know this for a fact according to Ezra 5, but 16 years the temple stopped. Now get the picture. They're in captivity because, and I didn't even cover this, but most of you will know this, Israel's in captivity because they had not been obedient to the Lord for certain numbers of years. And so God had a pagan nation, the Assyrians, come and deport them into their land. And they were there for a lot of years. Cyrus, being used of God, even though he was a pagan king, allowed them to go back and rebuild their temple. They go back with great joy and enthusiasm. Well, they didn't get there any time before the critics start saying, this is not going to work. And so from that, they get fearful and then they completely stop building the temple, which leads to number three, indifference. They, come, they become indifferent. It's that attitude that says, what's the point? Why do I need to continue on? If nobody else cares, why should I? I don't really want to be the only one who's like this. I don't want to be the odd man out. I mean, they're going to just label me as weird and think I'm some freak. And you know, that's a really dangerous place to be, isn't it? When indifference begins to take over your heart. Because it's then when God stops working. Now, God doesn't stop working in his plan. But it's when we in the heart stop seeing the work of God. And, and it's that time of indifference when energy drops, enthusiasm drops, and often depression even takes over which is evident by what happens here. Why else would they have stopped completely the building of the temple when God sent them back for that very purpose? When this kind of feeling, indifference takes over, then life starts being built really on kind of just getting by. Whatever's the easiest, the easiest path, just going through the motions. And when that's the case... Faith is no longer needed. You see what happened here, and we're going to see this in just a second. The people didn't any longer need to trust God because now they were back in their homeland, which is where they really wanted to be anyway. They were no longer under the Babylonian captivity or the leaders who had been through those periods of years. And so they come back, and nobody really wants to be a part of this anymore, and so there is no reason for faith, which leads to the fourth problem which is a heart of selfishness. And we know that not only because Ezra says that's what happened, but Haggai now, the contemporary of these, if you've ever read the book of Haggai, you know it's a very telling story. 
Haggai was actually a contemporary of Zechariah within a few months of age. And I'm talking about personal age. Who was during also the first wave back into Jerusalem. Listen to what Haggai now says. After 16 years have transpired of the remains of the temple or the beginning buildings of the temple being started here. Here's what he says in Haggai 1. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, Haggai didn't really have to say much more than that, but he will. It's a very short letter. The people would have understood very well what Haggai was talking about. Basically, what he's pointing out is the progression. 16, 18 years ago, the critics, in their disagreement, say, we don't want you to build this temple, which causes a great deal of fear in the hearts of the people, which caused the people then to turn to an indifference, which leads them into an inwardly focused heart, a selfish heart, meaning they began to focus, according to Haggai, on their individual comfort instead of what God wanted. That's why he said, look, you're living in your paneled houses. Now, I don't know if he's talking about the kind of stuff you get from Lowe's or not, but evidently he's saying you're taking a lot of time to make sure you're comfortable. You're building on your place with your energy and your livelihood to make sure that life is the way you want it to be while neglecting the work of the Lord. Evidently meaning that they weren't really concerned about the temple anymore. They weren't really concerned about what God had sent them there for in the first place. And so, because of all that we've said, they just began to inwardly focus on what they wanted, even at the expense of displeasing God. And I think what this all tells me, beloved, and I don't know if you're hearing this the same way or not, but isn't it amazing how the actions of some or others affect all of us? We really do have that effect. I mean, it doesn't matter what the situation is. I mean, when you think your actions are just your actions, boy, that's not right, though, is it? It really has a huge effect because for 16 years, the negativity of a few caused everyone to stop doing what they should have been doing. And the work of God stopped. And I have to believe that there were probably people within the group that never really came back anyway. I mean, after all, I mean, who wants to put up with that? How many people want to live through something like that and, and continue the effort and the energy? And so I have to believe that there were some folks that just went on and did something else. Perhaps I hope for the Lord, and I'm speculating here because we don't know. That's not the point of the prophecy text. But I do know, making this a little personal, I do know, beloved, for those of you who have been here with us, I know that we have had people over the years here at Laurel Hill who have left because things weren't moving forward. These were people who were very interested in making sure that the church continued on and moved on in progress. But when they couldn't get anybody to join them in ministry, they said, and I've had people tell me this, there's no reason for me to stay. These are the movers and the shakers, you know, those people that want to see things happen and they want to make sure that stuff gets done. And they're essential, really, to every ministry. 
you got to have people like that. Any business, any organization has to have people that have an energy to move things forward. When they, but when they see everybody sitting on the sidelines and they're the only ones that are doing something, then it makes it awfully hard for them to continue on as Lone Rangers. And so I'm just giving you a personal experience, uh, illustration of the conversations that I have and how people have shared their thoughts with me over the years. And I think it's a great warning to us. I think God is saying to us as his people that, look, I have put you where I put you so that you will do my work. But if we listen to the things that are going on around us and we become more comfortable with who we are and what we want out of this life, then we're going to miss the boat. So listen to what the Lord's saying here. As much as enthusiasm is catching, so is the opposite just as true. Discouragement and indifference pushes people away. Now notice how God responds to all this. Stay with me in Haggai chapter 1. First he calls them to do a heart check. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. That word consider is an earnest appeal. It's like the Lord is begging. Far be it from the Lord to beg. But that's really what he's doing here. He's begging them to think about what they're doing. Almost like saying, I plead with you to look into your hearts and ask yourself, are you really following me? Are you really doing what I want you to do? Or are you more concerned about what you want and how you think life should be? Well, the obvious answer was they were more concerned about what they wanted than what God wanted. So God goes on in verse 6 and tells them, okay, well, you'll get a little bit of return for your labors, but you're never going to be satisfied. He says, you have sown much, I'm in Haggai 1.6, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough, and he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. Now, I don't really have to explain a lot of that. I think it's pretty clear. The Lord says, basically, you had barely enough just to survive off of, or even what you did have was never satisfying, and that's because only God can truly satisfy. Isn't that what he's saying? I will bless you with everything that I have within me, basically, with whatever you need in this life but I want you to trust me. He talks about the clothing. You put your clothes on, but you don't even stay warm. I mean, he's talking about the physical here, and why is that? Well, it's because you've either spent your money, I can hear God saying this, on the pleasures of yourself, trying to find meaning and purpose for your life, which is what we do, right? We search for everything to try to find meaning and purpose in our life, and when that doesn't satisfy, we continually look for the next thing. And the Lord is simply saying, hey, I'm the one who provides and satisfies. You're going you're gonna to chase your tail forever trying to satisfy yourself. It'll never work. That's why we have so many stories out here and how many times we have lived the same kind of life where we buy more, we do more, we try to have more, and it never satisfies. Finally, God says in verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, 
I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, which each of you runs to his own house. Now, in other words, I hear the Lord saying, you work and you work and you work, but still there's not enough money. There's not enough clothing. You're just always chasing after this or that from job to job, from place to place, looking for financial freedom, looking for whatever it is that you need internally because you know you need those things. But again, God is simply saying, if you just trust me, I will be your provider. Lastly, God says in verse 10, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land. That's God saying this. On the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labors of your hands. And I think you begin to get the point, right? We don't have to think too deeply about this if we're listening to what the Lord is saying. Now you're probably sitting here saying, I thought this was a Palm Sunday message. It is. This is the background to the joy of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Because that's the history of the people with the city. With the holy city of David. I have to go back to all of that to see the hearts of the people and why they were thinking the way they were when the God of the universe rode into the holy city. They were missing the point completely. Why? Because they'd never gotten over themselves. They had been so many centuries looking to be and do and have for themselves that they missed God in their very presence. But thankfully, we have a God who is faithful to us and to his promises. Regardless of how we are, God is going to convince, I mean, is going to fulfill what he has said he is going to do. So about 40 years after Zechariah would open his letter, he prophesies this very verse in Zechariah 9.9, which would be fulfilled 500 years later. And all the gospel writers share it, which is what I said in the beginning. Let me just take John 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, that's talking about Passover, when they'd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's Zechariah. And the king of Israel, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And the Lord came. And the people didn't recognize him. Because they were so steeped in fear and indifference and a critical spirit. So much so that his power was blinded from them. Thinking that he was coming to rescue them so that they could have the nation that they wanted. When he came to give them the nation and kingdom of his father. But they missed it. Now, the joy of all this is, though, we don't have to miss it because he's told us all of this and he's given us the illustrations of the people that have gone before us. And so on this day, you and I 
can rejoice in knowing that our God is on his throne and he is fulfilling his promises and has fulfilled his promises so that one day when we give our hearts to him, we will be with him forever in his glory. Now, sadly, and you know the story, we'll talk about this next week, the people, again, were so lost in their selfishness and their indifference that just a few days later, they would not be shouting Hosanna, but they would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? For everything that we just said. But mainly because he didn't do for them what they wanted him to do for them. The truth is, beloved, and I don't have to tell you this, we're all pretty broken, aren't we? Anybody agree with that? We're broken people. We think we know, but we don't know. That brokenness causes us to be bent in our own ways, to follow our own desires and our own wants, and really, quite honestly, leaving very little room for Jesus. We profess him, and we say that we believe him, but our actions don't really show it very well. We're really not very different from the Hebrews. When all he really wants is for us to love him and to serve him and let his spirit guide us. It's really not too much to ask. So maybe we should ask the question, what are we really celebrating today? I mean, it's wonderful to have the children come and give us the picture. And children are so special and so precious. They're such a beautiful representation. And and thank you, Missy, for having us sing the song, Jesus Loves Me. It's beautiful. To decorate the church and to be excited about what Easter is here and the, the time of year and the spring is sprung. But the question becomes, what are we really celebrating? What are we looking forward to next week on Easter Sunday? Is it the fact that God has made a way for you to be rebuilt? Boy, that's a good thing to be excited about. Like God sent the Hebrews back to be rebuilding his temple. Are you excited about the fact that the temple of his spirit lives within us? Or we are the temple of his spirit, I should say. To know that he took what was so broken and because you simply said, yes, come into me, make of me all that you want me to be, and now you see that your life is rebuilt? Debbie and I have been listening and just listened to an amazing testimony of a young man who was radically transformed in his life through the power of the working of the Spirit of God and how he went from such darkness into amazing light, boom, just like that. And I would say that happens to every soul who truly comes into the presence of Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about the person who comes looking and wanting and desperately understands that they need him as their God. You will not enter into the presence of the Lord Jesus in that kind of heart and not come away changed. You will not because he's in the business of changing hearts and rebuilding them. So what are you celebrating this morning? Are you celebrating the actual resurrection or the preparation of the resurrection? And the entry of Christ into your heart, are you celebrating the concept, the idea, just because it's the time of year? So I guess the final thought is don't miss Jesus in life. Don't let your life turn into being a critic. 
Don't let the things of this world cause you to become critical because critics end up controlling and being controlled by their own fear. And when all that begins to build, you understand now that how indifference can just begin to take over. What difference does it make? I'll just survive. But Jesus came to take away all of that. He doesn't want us to live with a critical spirit. He came to rescue us from that kind of thing. To have hope and and passion and, and drive and purpose in this life. Not just for what we do, but spiritually. So that we remember that the purpose of this life is really to see souls come to know him. And to be redeemed for eternity. That's our real purpose. So don't lose sight of that. Don't let selfishness dominate you. Let me tell you, selfishness will lead to one thing, and that is a slow and agonizing death. It will eat you from inside out, which is exactly what happened to the Hebrews. They missed their God. As a result, God turned to the, Hebrew, to the Gentiles. That's why there's the church. There's coming a day where his chosen ones of the Hebrew people will see we know that historically and contextually. What we want to do is make sure we don't miss him now. That's what we celebrate, is the joy of knowing that Jesus has the ability, even to this day, to change the heart that needs him most. Which is why Isaiah then, talking about another Old Testament prophet, can say, he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. I hate to be kind of cliche-ish, but I guess it fits. And that is to simply ask, if Jesus were to make a triumphal entry into your heart, what would that mean for you? It's a good thing to think about. You might need that today. Maybe that's why you're here. Many of you are here because you already understand and know and believe exactly what I'm talking about. But maybe you're here today because somebody invited you. Maybe you're here because you're curious. Maybe because the Spirit has been doing some things in your life that you're not really sure of or what's happening. But you know something's going on. Well, I can assure you, based on the authority of God's Word, if you're sensing God drawing you here and into Him, He will complete His work in your heart if you'll just let Him and be open. Just as Ron prayed. Just let the Spirit of God do His work, okay? All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank You that many, 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 many years ago, there was a group of people whom You chose through a man named Abraham to be Your chosen generation, Your chosen people. I'm talking about the Jews. Who You blessed and You poured Yourself into you provided for throughout the centuries. And you continually provided for them glimpses of your coming. You foretold it through many, many, many prophets and over centuries of time. You gave them the location and the timing and all of it if they would just had their eyes open and their ears listening. And Lord, thank you that you fulfilled that perfectly to the minutest detail even as we just read from the Gospel of John, where literally you sat upon a donkey, just as was prophesied 500 years before, and you came into the city. Thank you, Lord, that even in our day, many centuries later, 
you're still in the business of writing triumphantly into the hearts of those who need you most. And so as we celebrate this day, Lord, help us to examine our hearts first. Help us to be those people who are like the Hebrews on the side who did see and did understand and were there with you at the foot of the cross, the disciples, the women, those who had understood that you were very God come in the flesh. Lord, let us be those people. Let us push aside all the things that distract us and keep us from being everything that you want us to be. Help us, Lord, to come surrendered at the foot of your cross, that we might find life and that we might find the joy of knowing what it means to be a child of yours, the joy of knowing that every means in this life will be provided for us according to your plans and your purpose. So thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for making a way for us to know you. Thank you for giving us the privilege of seeing how far we have been away from you and yet how capable you are of drawing us to you. And so our prayer this morning, Lord, as we close, as always as it is, that for that heart that needs you most right now, I pray that you would open it and that they would simply say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Father, for that soul that has been aware of you, has walked with you, has been a part of your church, that may find themselves with a critical attitude or an indifferent spirit or a fearful heart, maybe even moving into selfishness, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to release all of that to you and whatever else is binding them and not allow Satan to have any kind of way in their lives. Lord, thank you for coming to set the captives free. We rejoice in you this morning. We thank you. We praise you. We honor you. And we bless your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Could everyone stand, please?
Father, we just thank you so much for being the God, the one who made the way. As you made the way into Jerusalem, Lord, you knew what was coming. You knew what you were riding into, but yet you still did it. Lord, you kept your promise. You made a way for us to one day be with you. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you do for us. Lord, forgive us the times that we disappoint you, the times that we sin against you. But, Lord, thank you so much for your grace and mercy. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. <laughs> 